over the past few weeks, we've been uh, addressing issues of faith. We've looked at faith in our lives. We've looked at how there's really only one fight worth fighting, and that is the fight of faith. We talked about keeping our trust and our reliance in God and in God alone. And last week, we reinforced how it isn't just a faith is conversation, but also an honest faith in one as well. How our faith needs to be firmly placed in Christ and Christ alone. Because we all put faith in things, and those things contest and contend for that space in our heart about what we think will cover us, what we think will get us where we want to go in life. And if it's not in Christ and Christ alone, then our faith is misplaced. And in it all, we can talk about that. We can simultaneously get it. We can understand what the conversation is, but on the same time, go like, but how do I really put that into practice? What does it really look like for me to live out my faith? Well, today we're going to continue on with that topic, and we're going to look at how it uh, plays out in our everyday lives, specifically looking at areas of patience and prayer. Because there is a faith link between the two. And we, as followers of Jesus, need to embrace this. Now, the book we're looking at, and again, I'll say it almost every single week, we're reading through the whole Bible in in over the next three years. And we started in the New Testament in the fall, and we're now into the book of James. So we're getting near the end of the New Testament here. And James, the book of James, which is most likely James, the brother of Jesus, the Messiah, our king. This is his earthly brother born of Joseph and Mary. And we can see this from, if you look in Matthew 13, you can see it there. And as well in Acts 15, those two chapters, you'll see the connection between James, his brother, and James, the the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The connection, he makes a connection in his book between faith and works. Right, the working out of our faith. The faithful are to receive God's word, Jesus, and then do it. We need to do what Jesus has commanded us. And if our faith has no action, there's no essential elements to it that get lived out. There's no discipline in our everyday lives for it. There's no denial of wanting to do what feels good versus wanting to do what Jesus said. And there's no mercy in the middle of it. There's no struggle in the the middle of it. If there's none of those things happening in your life, then you're probably doing faith wrong because faith is going to require all those elements from us. Now, those the works that he talks about, they're not just the pious acts that we do that are meant to show our allegiance. They're not just uh, us doing good deeds to another person to show that we've done done some good work in, in our lives. It's not really what it is about. They are the strenuous effort of a trust that's fully placed in Jesus and the word and it, that insists it must be followed. Our works are us taking what the Bible says what Jesus says about who we are and how we're supposed to live, and then actually doing it. That's what the works are. They're not just things we perform. 
We cannot show our faith without works, right? We can't show our faith without applying the truth of Jesus to our lives. No matter the difficulty, no matter how different it looks from our culture, what that looks like to live out the words of Jesus, no matter the disdain that we receive from others, we are called to live out what Jesus has asked of us. And absolutely, those verses, they have been and they, they, they are, they're manipulated into acts of kindness, proofs, and payments for righteousness. That's how we often live. I See, God, I did my good deeds. See that? I, I gave a little to the food bank, or I, I did a little here, or a volunteer over there. That puts me in a good spot with you, right, God? We're thinking that we're earning something with those works. It's even been taught that way in the church in the past, but that is never the heart of the matter. Faith always requires our inability to attain what we long for. That what you want from God, you can't get in your own strength. You must receive it. Even your faith is a gift from God. The works are the application of that truth without the fullness of that promise being present. Let me, let me give you an example. Our salvation is a perfect example of our faith being lived out. The word says, if we confess our sins and believe in Christ Jesus, then what? We are saved, right? We have salvation. So for many of us, that was a one-moment thing, right? We sat, we kneeled, we prayed, we said, Jesus, come into my heart. I don't want to live my life without you. I confess my sins. I'm yours. In that moment, you are saved. But then you got to keep on living. In the next moment, you need to be saved. God needs to hold you while you do what? Fall short. Because in that moment, you are like, God, I'm all in. And in that moment, you are freshly washed and cleaned. And then in the next moment, something creeps in. You fall short of God's glory. And you are in constant need of his saving grace. So there's an initial salvation, and then there's an ongoing salvation, and then there's going to be, when we see Jesus face to face, a final salvation where we are made pure and clean and right in his presence. So you can see our salvation is a moment. It's a holding on to something that we are not quite yet. Because if you're like me, you are not perfect. You are far from perfect. Thoughts, doubts creep into your mind. Sin is at the door waiting to consume you just like it's trying to consume me. And we are struggling with that as we try and follow Jesus now. But there will be a day where our faith is fulfilled in our salvation. That's what faith looks like. But back to our question. Why are patience and prayer forever linked together? How are these two linked to our faith? Well, James says it like this in chapter 5. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient 
about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may be so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door as an example of suffering and patience. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the uh, steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how, it is, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Until the coming of the Lord, right in the middle of that passage, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. They lived with a faith-filled anticipation that had not yet come about. The same anticipation that we live with, that the day of the Lord is at hand. That we, we anticipate the approach of Jesus and we live for that moment. And so we need to establish our hearts. But if the book of James can highlight anything about our lives, it's this. That our timeline and God's timeline, they're rarely synchronized well, are they? Considering they were consistently saying time and time again in their early church, be ready for the day of the Lord is at hand. Be ready for the day of the Lord is at hand. And we still say today, be ready for the day of the Lord is at hand. Our view of reality and God's view of reality often are, they're not in sync. We can see things and anticipate things, but God's working on his timing. It's perfect. The psalmist in, in Psalm 103, he says, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his loving kindness for those who fear and worship him. And Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 55, he picks up on that theme. And he says this. He adds a twist to it and says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is always with us, but he is equally always high above us. He walks with us daily in our lives, wanting to lead us and guide us in how to live out our lives. But at the same time, he attends to the universe. There's billions of people on earth that he is also equally engaged with. He is with us, and yet he is so high above us that the earth is his footstool. We have to keep those two things in mind. We often expect that our timeline, how we see things, we expect that that is the utmost priority of God. It's his primary concern to be worried about the timeline of how we are doing things, where our life is going. 
Yet there is a, a faith-based patience that James encourages us to live out. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Be patient as a farmer waits for that precious fruit of the earth. Be patient by displaying a settled trust in God. I'm going to read through some passages, and you can see the theme that grows through them. In Numbers 23, we read that God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And then in 1 Samuel, we read, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, wrote Malachi. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, wrote Titus. And so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. For us to be patient, it requires us to establish our heart, to be settled, to be immovable, and that God is who God declared himself to be, and that God will do what he says he will do. The same word that we use for establish here is used elsewhere in the Bible. It says in, uh, in Luke 9, that same word is used to say that Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem on the path to being crucified. He established his path that he would not deviate from the path that he was on. In Luke 16, it's used to say to the rich man who wanted uh, Lazarus, a poor man who had died, to, to reach across a chasm and just put a drip of water on his tongue. And he's told that there has been established a gap between them that cannot be crossed. It is a permanent gap that cannot be crossed. In Luke 22, Jesus uses that word, to establish Peter as a leader of the church who will establish the disciples and turn them from a group of followers of Jesus into the body of Christ. And Paul uses it to say to Timothy that he would establish the church in Thessalonica. To establish our hearts is to cement our faith, to become immovable in our belief of who God is. And when we do, this allows us to be patient, to trust God's timeline, that it's perfect compared to our earthly one. 
when we look at the series of events in our lives and we go, God, where are you in this all? Why is this happening and why am I not seeing the fruit of my labor yet? There's a trust in God in it all that we must keep. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, to be hasty, to live with an impatient spirit is another form of pride, of human arrogance that imagines it knows better than God. That we know better than God. God, this was the perfect time for me to receive that blessing. God, this was the perfect time for me to advance at my company. God, this was the perfect time for you to give us children. God, this was the perfect time for us to become debt-free or to be healed or to see this happen. This was a perfect time, God. You missed your window of opportunity. Like we know best. It's a form of pride when we doubt God knows best, that God is in ultimate control, that God can put together all things for good for those who love and follow him. I love how James ends the book on this pivot, though, because being patient is something that we lean into to be in real time. You can't just have patience. You need to be patient in the now but not yet of Christ's return, we live this out. Because in that space, what do we face? Imperfection, brokenness, and the effects of sin. While we hold on to the perfection of our faith that is to come, we live in the real world of messiness. So while practicing being patient, living from a settled trust in who God is, Because of sin, we're going to face suffering and sickness. What riches we have in God that he knows where we are in our battle of faith. And he prepares us for those moments. Just like we read earlier, where he said, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophet's who spoke in the name of the Lord. Those prophets who spoke that God does not lie, that he will be a savior, that he will be a rescuer, that he will establish his people, that there will become a time that they all dine with him. We get those from the prophets of the Old Testament who never saw what they prophesied about. Not even a glimpse. They saw persecution. They saw their country being taken over by foreigners time and time again as sin would encroach on their hearts. They didn't get a sniff of the promise. There's almost a four, there's around a 400-year gap between the last prophecy of Malachi and the coming of Jesus that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew. They didn't see any of it, but they were patient. And in the midst of their patience, there was suffering. There's a relationship between suffering and patience. Even as parents, those of you who've been parents, you know that there's a relationship between patience and suffering. That as you watch your children grow, there's a patience and a suffering involved in that. 
There's a patience as you, you let them become who God wants them to become. And your heart suffers for it as there's ups and downs in their journeys. There's, there's times where they seem close to God and, and times where you're on your knees praying that they would hold on to God. There's an embrace of what trials we face because they are the soil in which the precious fruit of faith is grown. So be careful how you view suffering. Be careful how you view what is the, the, the ground that your patience needs to grow in because the fruit that it can offer you can also spoil if you don't establish your heart if you don't settle in your heart where your faith lies. This is where we, as a church, we need one another. Where our role as parts of the body of Christ are essential for our growth and the reflection of Christ. James continues and he says, if anyone as among you is suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might rain, that it might not rain, sorry. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So in suffering, cheerfulness, or sickness, we pray, we praise, or we're prayed over by others. And so what do prayer and praise and being prayed for have in common? These are all things that we do patiently with established hearts, hoping to see heaven overlap with earth to see the mighty ways of God and to give glory for his good and his perfect gifts. What could be different in the world if every Christ follower set it as an aim to pray, to praise, and to be ready to pray over someone who is suffering or sick each day? What would be different in Cornwall if we did this not every church, but just this church. What if we did that? What if we were ready to pray, praise, or pray over someone who is sick and suffering every day of our lives? What difference would that make in our community? The road of suffering and sickness, it's the most vulnerable place for us as followers of Jesus to become lost when we question and we doubt what's going on, 
We lose their heart to pray. We, the establishment of our heart becomes vulnerable. A settled trust in who God is and even their desire to exercise faith for others, it can waver in the, under those conditions. And becoming lost, for James, it looks like one wandering from the truth, which is what happens. If God says he is who he says he is, like those verses we read through, he does not lie. He cannot change. He will do what he says he will do. But in those moments of suffering, in those moments of unanswered questions, we as followers of Jesus can, can take that truth and we can go, but really? And we can tend to lose our way from it and wander from it and look for answers and solutions and, and some type of like whatever, anything to make us feel even a little bit better. We leave the truth of who God is for those things and wander. When sickness isn't healed, we're vulnerable to go astray. When suffering seems to be unrelenting, we're vulnerable to stray from that trust in who God is. When our timeline and God's are not in sync, we're vulnerable to be misled. And James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And between the call for confession of sin and the wandering of those whose hearts were not established, whose patient wore thin in trials and suffering, there's a great opportunity for us to grow as the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke deeply of our need to understand this when he said this. He said, sin demands to have a man to himself. It withdraws him from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. We are needed as a church to cover ourselves, to be there for each other, to help us when our hearts want to fail, when our will seems to want to give in, the support that others can give can be essential. And so too, the confessing to one another, it destroys that deadly isolation. To confess to one another the issues that we're facing, the trials that our hearts are going through, the temptation do we have to give in, to confess it to others. It removes the veil of hypocrisy in us and it allows grace to flow freely in community. Confession also brings healthy humility to the body of Christ. Bonhoeffer goes on to say this, that confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts. It hurts to confess. It cuts a man down. It is a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is an ignominy or shame for those of us who don't use old English words. That is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man does a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother. 
Now, while Catholicism has wrongly institutionalized confession with a designated intermediary, evangelicals have gone the other way. We've taken confession and made it a purely private thing just between God and I. We've strayed just as far the other way. There's space in the middle that the Bible says confession must happen. That it's not just between you and God, but you and the body of Christ. That you confess your sins one to another and be healed. It's something that we need to be better at as a church on both sides. Confessing, stating the what, D, what Bonhoeffer says, the concrete sins, confessing the sins to one another. We need to be better at that. And we need to be also better at receiving those confessional statements and praying with our brothers putting a protective wing over them, not using that confession as ammunition against them, but that moment as a healing balm for them. Why do we do this? It's to live with integrity in the light of Christ and his body, the church, to establish our hearts, to steadfastly endure to live with a healthy understanding of what it takes to patiently wait for the coming of the Lord. And when some wander, and with those who've wandered, what do we do? An essential insight is only found in prayer. And it must not be what, but how am I called to bring them back to God? It's not am I, but how am I called to bring them back? We don't shame people to bring them back. We don't criticize people to bring them back. And we don't fault find to bring them back to God. We can only bring people back if we're willing to meet them where they are and walk each step of the way back with them. So this has led us full circle to walk with others back home in Christ, what does that require? Patience and prayer. So why are patience and prayer forever linked together? Because they are the necessary ingredients for you to live a life of faith. They are necessary for you to walk confessionally in the church and with those who are struggling in their faith in God. James doesn't give us any cute answers of how to do this. What he does do is he points us directly to how Jesus walks with us. Jesus is patient with me. Jesus is patient with you. And Jesus is making intercession or prayer on our behalf. And since we're called to be like Jesus, we do the same for others. Let us pray. God, we just thank you. We thank you again for who you are, that you are never changing in who you are. 
that even in the midst of a world that tosses us to and fro, we in our hearts don't need to be tossed. We can establish our hearts in you, that you are never changing, that your word is yes and amen, and we can rely on you. That when the frailty of our timing and our understanding of the path we're on, when it comes and brings everything into question, we can pause, reflect, and remember that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can trust you. We can stay established in you. So today, God, I just pray for anyone here whose heart has been prone to wander, that they would know that in this space today that they are loved, that they are welcomed back, and that even with confession and things that have to happen as far as how we reconcile things, that they are loved and your desires for them to be with you in community with the body of Christ. God, for anybody's heart is wavering, God, would they be reestablished in you today? May those verses that we read just wash over them how unchanging you are. The promises of healing, the promises of hope, the promises of things to come, they can hold on to them in you because your word does not return void. But may we as a community also step into what we need to be, that we work out our faith in you, God, and those works are hearing your word and then doing your word. Those works are wrestling through what that looks like in community. God, may we be a community that prays, that praises, and that is willing and ready to pray over anyone when needed. And we, th- we thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, your unchanging, your unchanging will toward us how you have established yourselves for us and nothing will change that. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. This is the first of our month, uh, the first Sunday of our month. And as it is our tradition, we uh, take communion on the first Sunday of the month. And so if you have a communion element, you can get it ready now. And if you don't, you can just kind of wave your hand and one of our usher teams or overseers will, uh, will come and give you your communion. In light of our need for prayer and praise, for confession, humility, and patience, and steadfast endurance, We come today to participate in a practice that Jesus commanded us to do, but that he wouldn't do until we are with him again. 
we do this in faith of an ultimate reality of our relationship with Jesus. That while we have a deposit of the Holy Spirit in us, that there is a day coming where we are face to face with our Lord and Savior and we share in this meal together with him. We do it consistently to remember that we place our faith in him to establish the work of our hearts, the work of the blood-stained cross, the empty tomb, and poured out the Holy Spirit. And as we come to share in communion, we are tasked by the Apostle Paul to pause, to reflect. Why? Because whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let's just take a moment now to examine our hearts, to see that we are establishing ourselves in the Lord, to make sure that our hearts aren't coming with, with things unclean in us, but that we reconcile ourselves before God this morning. Even if that means in a moment after communion, we do confess to our brothers or sisters. Even if it means taking those steps, let us reflect and examine ourselves. and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat of the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us drink of the cup. God, we proclaim your death today. And we do so so that we can participate in it, God. That your death for our sin, we need, we need that death and to be concluded in that so that we can also be included in the life that you have. So we proclaim it today that our salvation rests upon your death, your overcoming sin. We establish our hearts today in who you are, in your word that will never change. We establish our hearts in the fact that you will return and we will be reunited. We establish our hearts in the fact that you are with us, you are for us in the midst of our suffering, our circumstances. You are there for us. We establish ourselves in you today, Jesus. And when we fall short, when we don't live up. God, we commit ourselves to confessing our sins. We commit ourselves to praying for others that confess to us. So whether in our prayer, in our confession, in our praise, God, we establish ourselves in you following how you asked us to live. We thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us. God, may your will be established in our hearts today. We pray this.